when I landed to shut down the engine, the uh, crew chief comes up the ladder and he says, uh, Major, he says, uh, the phone's been ringing off the wall for you. It was the Soviet embassy. Now, how they got the phone number to the QRA, I have no idea. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. At the Abbotsford 1989 air show during the dying days of the Cold War, Canadian CF-18 pilot Major Bob Wade became the first Western pilot to fly a Soviet MiG-29 fulcrum fighter. This episode tells you how he did it. Now, I'm sure you are enjoying your weekly dose of Cold War history and would like to continue to do so. So I'm asking if you wouldn't mind supporting us by paying at least three US dollars a month. Higher amounts are welcome too. It's very straightforward and you can stop whenever you want. Plus, monthly supporters get the marvellous Cold War Conversations drinks coaster too. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. You can also help the podcast by leaving written reviews in Apple Podcasts as well as sharing us on social media. Don't miss the show notes that are mentioned at the end of this podcast which contain some amazing photos of Bob in the MiG-29. So back to today's episode. Bob and I talk in detail on the circumstances of the flight as well as what it was actually like to fly an aircraft you've never flown before with instruments in a language you don't understand and only 10 minutes of briefing. We welcome Major Bob Wade to our Cold War conversation. The Soviets, uh, I think, were probably having money problems. Uh, If you Google it, you can see that uh, cost estimates... uh, that they were budgeting at that time was about uh, anywhere between 40 and 68% of their GDP being spent on defense. And uh, they were running out of money. And I think they decided they would start marketing the uh, MiG-29 to the Western world. And uh, they showed the airplane in Paris in the summer of 89. I think that was probably July, June, July. And uh, the airplane crashed. Uh, and I told uh, Kvocher was a demonstration pilot that year, and uh, he uh, ended up bailing out from very low altitude. It was a remarkable demonstration of their uh, ejection seat capability, but uh, unfortunately, they didn't get the uh, opportunity to show the airplane like they wanted. Now, they wanted to uh, also come to North America, and they decided that Abbotsford in B.C. was probably the best environment in which to uh, demonstrate the MiG-29. Now, prior to coming over to that, the uh, Soviets had said that they wanted to uh, have one of their pilots fly either the F-18 or the F-15. And in exchange, they would allow a Western pilot to fly the MiG-29. And uh, the Americans said under no conditions that would happen. They didn't want to give up technology of the F-18 or F-15 to the Soviets. And uh, the Soviets, of course, were quite disappointed in that and uh, were unhappy. So when they uh, brought the two MiG-29s over to uh, North America, they came across the Bering Strait and uh, they were intercepted uh, as they came across there by uh, the American uh, F-15s that were on the alert force holding alert out of Alaska in Elmendorf. And they escorted the two MiG-29s into uh, Elmendorf, and the, the boys spent the night there. And then the following day, they were to launch for Abbotsford. Now, I was the alert force commander in Comox at that time, and uh, NORAD gave me a heads up that uh, the MiG-29s would be transiting uh, Canadian airspace from the Alaska Panhandle over to the airport in, in Abbotsford, which is in southern British Columbia. So that... Uh, I had uh, only had, and normally I kept four airplanes on alert out in Comox. Uh, two were on active alert and two on standby. And so I, I uh, got uh, the pilots in, and uh, as I only had three aircraft, we took three aircraft for the intercept. My direction from NORAD was that I was to proceed no closer than 1,000 feet to the MiG-29s. I was to make, to make 
no attempt at uh, communicating with the MiG-29 pilots. It was just a, a simply an escort through Canadian airspace. And so at the appropriate hour, I got scrambled. I scrambled all three jets, and then we went up to do the intercept so that uh, we would uh, pick up that package of airplanes coming out of Elmendorf at the bottom of the Alaska Panhandle. And uh, I was under NORAD control, intercepted the uh, MiG-29s and F-15 escorts at the same time. And uh, everybody was being controlled by an AWACS aircraft that was following along as well at that time. So it was an interesting uh, experience because we had never seen the MiG-29 before. And uh, we, of course, had lots of intelligence briefings on it, but uh, everybody was pretty excited to actually see one in person. I uh, rolled out in the stern uh, at the bottom of the Alaska panel. I rolled out in the stern of uh, the uh, two MiG-29s about uh, several thousand feet behind them and had just trailing them. And they were uh, flying at about 37,000 feet, if I remember correctly. And uh, I don't know, I can't remember the speed, probably about Mach 0.9. We took the opportunity to take some pictures of both the F-15s and MiG-29s, and uh, the F-15 boys took some pictures as well. So we did get some photographs of that. And uh, we continued uh, down south. The F-15s waved off, and they went back into Elmendorf. And after about 20 minutes, I noticed that the two MiG-29s were ahead at about 40 degrees of what I thought should be their track. Now, they were under civilian aircraft control, air traffic control, from Vancouver Center. And so I had no idea what uh, they were, where they were being vectored as I was under the control of NORAD uh, AWACS aircraft. Right, so you couldn't listen to that channel at the same time? or. Well, I wasn't doing it. I could have, but I didn't do that. Uh, I called up AWACS and I said, hey, where are these boys headed? Uh, they're about 40 degrees right of where I think they should be going. And uh, AWACS said, hey, we have no idea where they're heading. So what I did then was uh, I called uh, our boys over to Vancouver Center uh, on the second radio. And I called up Vancouver Center and I said, hey, you got two MiG-29s headed down south that we're escorting, and they're going about uh, 40 degrees right of track from the way I could see. And the air traffic controller says, hey, we can see this whole gaggle of airplanes heading south, and uh, we haven't talked to anybody. So I uh, made the decision at that time to fly up beside the lead uh, MiG-29, and uh, he was uh, pointing at his headset and then giving me a thumbs down. So he's... That's an international hand signal saying I've got a radio failure. Just prior to that, I mean, what what did you think was was going on? Was that your assumption that they had some sort of comms failure? No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't have any real idea. I was told by NORAD that they were not to overfly Comox uh, Air Force Base, and we were undercast at that time. You couldn't see the ground, and. Uh, I really didn't know what their problem was, but it became obvious once I flew up beside the lead uh, MiG-29. It was a dual. It had two-seater uh, as the lead and a single-seater uh, on his wing. Right. If they had got near Comox, what what would have? Yeah, it probably would have been an international incident. Somebody would have complained, but uh, we certainly were going to hurt them. Yeah. I figured, okay, uh they're uh, having a problem here. I was going to give him a hand. So I pointed at the league MiG-29 pilot, and I pointed to a position about 40 degrees to the left, and the lead MiG-29 pilot acknowledged and, and turned immediately 40 degrees to the left. And uh, so then I wanted to know how much fuel he had on board, so we give a kind of a drinking motion with our hand and thumb, and uh, which is, again, an international hand signal. And uh, he comes back with three fingers telling me he's got 30 minutes of fuel left. Well, I can see that we're about 30 minutes out of uh, out of Abbotsford uh, if he had went straight. So what I decided to do was uh, put him on my wing. So I called up Vancouver Center and I said, hey, I'll put these boys on my wing. Request in present position, direct Abbotsford. And uh, Vancouver Center was more than happy to to help us out. And uh, that's what we did. So I had the two MiG-29s on my right wing, and then I put my two F-18s on my left wing, and uh, we started our descent in a long uh, approach into Abbotsford. And it was about uh, 
Abbotsford weather was about 1,500 feet above ground. And so that uh, we had about 30,000 feet of cloud to go through. I wasn't too sure how these pilots were at formation in cloud. Uh, I knew they were test pilots. I didn't know if they were fighter pilots or not. And uh, I could see the way they were tucked in. They were doing a good job. And they did. They were remarkably good pilots. So how, how close were, were they to you in this cloud? How far off your uh, Well, right they were uh, just wingtip clearance, uh, maybe a bit of overlap. They were tucked in pretty tight. And you have to. Wow. You're going through cloud, your visibility isn't too good. So that uh, Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, the slightest miscalculation on their part. and Well, they're not going to hit you, but uh, probably not going to hit you anyhow. Uh, you know, if the guys – they obviously knew how to fly formation by the way they were maintaining position. And uh, I, I wasn't too concerned about them. And it was a long, straight-in approach. It's not as though we're doing much maneuvering in cloud. As a fighter pilot, you're expected to be able to do that. In fact, we air refuel in cloud, which is a, even more of a challenge. So that uh, I, I was pretty impressed with what the boys did. And so we did this long en route descent. I broke out of cloud about 10 miles back from the runway in Abbotsford. We did a low approach. I did a pull-up and a right-hand turn. I waved the two MiG-29s off to, to land, and uh, they broke off the formation and uh, went into land at Abbotsford. And so I extended out on the downwind. When they were on the ground, we turned around and came back, flew over top of them. And because I was armed, I had, I, you know, I really wanted to stop in Abbotsford and, uh, and talk to these boys. But because I was armed, I, of course, I had to go back to Comox and uh, put the aircraft back on alert. But right. when I landed in Comox, uh, I just shut down the engine. The uh, crew chief comes up the ladder and he says, uh, Major, he says, uh, the phone's been ringing off the wall for you. And yeah, I wasn't too surprised at that as I just broken all the rules that Norhead had given me. And I figured it's commander of fighter group, you know, uh, uh, you know, tear me a new one. But anyhow, the, uh, it wasn't, it was the Soviet embassy. Now, how they got the phone number to the QRA, I have no idea, but, uh, that was it. Yeah. That, that's interesting in itself. <laughs> it is, you know, <laughs> And uh, it was, uh, I don't know, it was somebody at the embassy just wanting to thank me for the assistance we'd given to the two MiG-29s. And uh, they said, we'd like you to be their, our, our guest if you're coming over to the Abbotsford Air Show. Well, I was taking two airplanes over there anyhow, and I said, yes, of course, I would love to. And uh, finished holding alert until uh, Friday. And then uh, on the Friday, I uh, took two jets over to Abbotsford, and we were going to be on static display over there. And uh, me and another another one of the boys went over to the Soviet uh, embassy or Soviet tents. They had a pavilion there, and uh, we introduced ourselves to the uh, the guard out back and uh, told him who we were. And he told us to stay there, and he went inside. And a couple minutes later, he comes out, and he says, Nyet, go away. So <laughs> we figured, okay, you know, Cold War's still on. We went away and uh, tried it again the next day. And uh, the next day was a Saturday. And uh, again, you know, the guard comes back, and he says, Nyet, go away. They don't want to talk to us. So we just laughed, and uh, we left and went back to, to our static display aircraft at that time. And I guess the Soviets were pretty choked up. They really wanted to fly the F-15, F-16, and they also really wanted to get a Western pilot to make an assessment of their MiG-29, which would help them market it, you know, in the Western world. Mm. And, you know, that's all speculation on my part. I don't really know uh, what their motivations were, but uh, that's the way I kind of figured it played out. And then finally on the Sunday uh, of the show, the last day of the show, towards the end of the show, uh, the Soviets uh, had agreed that, okay, they would allow a Western pilot to fly the MiG-29, uh, but there'd be no reciprocal requirement for the Soviet pilot to fly an F-15, F-18. And uh, Scott Eichel, he was a two-star general and a senior military commander at the uh, air show. And uh, he had been told by the commander of the, uh, of the military, uh, 
General Manson that under no circumstances would that happen, you know. And so Scott had to stick his neck way out saying, well, this is not really a reciprocal agreement. You know, it's not really exactly what we talked about. And he says, okay. The Associate Deputy Minister of Defense was also there, Mary Collins, and uh, they uh, they decided between the two of them that, okay, we'll stick our necks out and we'll allow a Western pilot to fly that. And so the uh, Scott came over to me and asked me if I'd be willing to do that. And uh, I said, yeah, I'd do that. And uh, they uh, took me over to where the two MiG-29s were and uh, introduced me to the pilots and uh, said, okay, you get in the, I could fly from the front seat of that uh, dual MiG-29. And uh, Anatoly was still hurting a bit from his bailout in Paris. And so that uh, Valerie Meniski, another uh, Mikoyan uh, test pilot, would fly in my back seat. Well, Valerie didn't speak a word of English at that time. and uh, That sounds quite a problem then. Yeah, yeah. So this could be interesting. So the, the translator said, taught Valerie, he says, okay, here's your phrase you're going to need. You're going to have to say Bob pilot when you want Bob to fly or Valerie pilot when you're going to fly. You know, and so Valerie had that. And I think, you know, he probably had a, a, a smattering uh, of English in aviation internationally. You need to have English. So he spoke a bit, but we really couldn't carry on a conversation. Uh, my G-suit and uh, helmet wouldn't adapt to the Soviet cockpit so that uh, I wore uh, Roman Tasky's uh, G-suit and helmet. And Roman, I'm six foot two, uh, 190 pounds, and uh, Roman was maybe five foot eight, you know, <laughs> probably the same weight, tough looking little guy. And so his G-suit didn't fit that well, and his helmet was uh, quite a bit too big for me, but uh, I didn't uh, really mind that much. I was going to get a chance to fly this make. And uh, they strapped me into the thing, and they showed me how to start it. And uh, I'm looking at the, the flight instruments, and they're all in Cyrillic. You know, I can't understand any of them. Uh, the speedometer, the speed was indicated in kilometers per hour, altitude in meters. You know, so my math was pretty good, but I, I couldn't translate fast enough the numbers that I needed to know. They didn't tell me uh, landing gear speeds, flap speeds, takeoff speeds, anything like that. So I had real, really no knowledge of that. And I assumed that Valerie, uh, you know, would, would do the takeoff and landing. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War, um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. But So this was, I mean, this this was quite a, a gamble on, on your part here because this could have, you know, a misunderstanding at the wrong point in time. Yes. Could have uh, spelt disaster. Well, could have, yeah. You know, but uh, I didn't feel that, uh, you know, that'd be a problem. Uh, it's a fighter airplane. It's like driving cars. They're all very similar. You know, it's got a stick and it's got a throttle. But the problem uh, was that I had no pre-planning time. It was literally 10 minutes from the time that uh, Scott Eichel had asked me if I'd fly it until I was strapping in that cockpit. And uh, I could tell they were concerned uh, as to what was going on. In fact, Mary Collins come up to uh, come up to me when I was putting on my G suit, and uh, she said, "Major Wade, don't be don't be screwing this up, or we'll both be looking for work." And uh, <laughs> I just kind of laughed, you know. Uh, and uh, you know, yeah, well, she might yeah, be looking for work. Yeah. I'd be dead, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's a, there's a slight difference there. Yeah, you know, but 
it was a, a great opportunity. You know, that's the way I kind of looked at it. Now, I was the uh, F-18 demonstration pilot in 1986, so I had a 12-minute low-level aerobatic routine that I was doing. And I kind of wanted to duplicate some of those maneuvers so I could make a direct comparison between the MiG-29 and the F-18. And uh, so after I started up, uh, Valerie taxied out of the line, uh, and they didn't have nose wheel steering. He was using differential brake, and uh, that surprised me a whole bunch. And uh, once we were taxiing out, I, I took control and uh, got clearance for takeoff, and Valerie was happy with me doing the takeoff. You know, I had no idea what the takeoff speed was, but it was, uh, you know, I figured, okay, I would watch their air show. I saw how much runway they were using for takeoff, and I figured, okay, I'll go down the runway that far and take her airborne. I didn't know what the fuel load was on the airplane, so I didn't really know what the weight was. Because when I was doing the uh, F-18 show, I would do a takeoff loop, now, nobody else in any other airplane that I'd seen had ever demonstrated the takeoff loop. The F-18 was capable of that, but it's got no alpha limit. It's got an incredible capability that most airplanes don't have. So I wasn't going to do a takeoff loop uh, with the MiG-29. I wanted to do a roll off the top. And so pulling through the vertical after takeoff, uh, on the F-18, the air airspeed would stagnate or maybe roll back a few knots. On the MiG-29, when I pulled through the vertical, that airplane was still accelerating. So I knew it had better thrust to weight at whatever fuel weight it was carrying than what the F-18 has. You know, so I was pretty happy with that. That uh, that was good. And uh, yeah, because I've seen I've seen them at air shows where they do that maneuver where they go up and then stall. Yeah, and then <laughs> tail slide. Uh, accelerate to the level. <laughs> It's incredible. Yeah. You know, so it had great thrust to weight. And uh, I did a roll off the top, and then I did another one just to gain some altitude so we could do some hard maneuvering. And uh, I rolled the airplane in both directions uh, with max stick deflection and because uh, I just wanted to see what the roll rates were. It was very equivalent to the F-18. Now, the F-18 will uh, roll at 720 degrees per second, so two complete rolls in one second. And uh, the big 20 in MiG-29 was quite comparable to that. And so I tried a hard turn in each G, in each direction, but I couldn't read their G-meter. I didn't know where it was, and uh, I couldn't read it anyhow. And so I just pulled to maybe a 7G pull, and it was quite stable and had enough power and afterburner to sustain that turn. And uh, then Valerie said, Valerie, pilot. And I said, yeah, okay. And uh, Valerie took the airplane uh, about 3,000 feet above the ground, took it into the vertical, pulled both throttles to idle. So the airplane stops going up and goes into a tail slide. Now, on the F-18, if you go into a tail slide, it takes you about 5,000 feet to recover. Now, I'd seen it demonstrate that in the air show, but Valerie threw both, their, uh, both throttles into the afterburner, and both burners lit off at exactly the same time. And that surprised me a wee bit because on the F-18, uh, you know, there's normally uh, one lights off before the other. But on the MiG-29, they both lit off, lit off instantaneously. And then Valerie pushed the stick forward and the nose fell. And that surprised me a little bit too because when you're falling backwards, your elevators should work in the opposite direction. But the aircraft is uh, very stable. The nose came down and he flew out of it without a problem. And so I was seeing Bob Pilot a lot then, and uh, Valerie says, Bob Pilot, I take control, and I do the same thing. I go under the vertical, both throttles to idle, it goes into the tail slide, I drop the nose, light the burners, and she flies out of it just like Valerie did. And I realized that... You make it sound, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was a little surprised at how easy it was. And uh, I realized how, how do, you know when. Sorry, I just want to ask yeah. you when Valerie did that the first time, and he turned the throttle to idle. What did you think at that point? Were you well, <laughs> worried? Just, at yeah, all? I thought, well, this is getting a little exciting. You know, I'd seen them demonstrated in the air show, so I knew the airplane was capable of it. You know, but uh, I was a bit surprised at how how capable it was of doing that, considering the F eighteen won't do that. 
You know, you, you gotta have a hard yeah. time getting that nose down if you're in the in, into a tail slide on an F eighteen. And the, when they when the uh, MiG twenty nine came down at Paris, what was it trying to do that maneuver, or was it some other maneuver that? No, no, he got he uh, he was about a thousand feet above ground, uh, going into a downwind uh, portion of his shoal, and he injected a bird into the engine. All right, and, uh, okay. Uh, now. Uh, he had two engines, but he was unable to recover with one engine for some reason. And so the airplane rolled over, and he was vertical, maybe three, 400 feet above the ground when he got out of that airplane. That's, uh, he was in that chute for probably a second or less. Wow. Yeah. So Anatoly was very lucky on that day. And he just tough as nails. <laughs> um, sorry, I I, inter- I interrupted you. You were you were um, no, describing some of the other maneuvers that you tried out. Yeah, uh, I saw Valerie. Uh, you'll recovered. I did the same thing as him on my my turn at doing a tail slide. So I threw. I took it right up into another tail slide, and this time on recovery, rather than allow the nose to fall, I just put both engines in afterburner and I held it about seventy degrees nose up. And then I could rudder in both directions. And what I wanted to see was what its low-speed dogfighting capability was. You know, so how maneuverable was it sitting there at 30, 40 uh, degrees angle of attack? Mm. And uh, I, uh, I was amazed. You know, I learned a lot in that particular maneuver. That uh, It was equal to an F-18 uh, in, in that environment. At the high alpha, high, you know, low speed, high angle uh, of attack. Yeah. So that uh, after that, uh, Valerie uh, says, Valerie pilot again, and he goes into a turn which I'm estimating is about 8G. And uh, we do a 360 degree turn at 8G. Now, he never told me he was going to do that. And so I get buried into the cockpit, of course, at 8G all of a sudden. And so I'm working hard just trying to stay conscious. And uh, I'm watching the airspeed indicator. And at HG, that airspeed never increased, but it never decreased by any more than about 20 knots throughout that 360-degree turn. So that's a pretty credible turn capability for a fighter airplane. But again, I don't know what his fuel it was. You know, was he still at combat fuel? I don't know. Right. And then uh, Valerie says, uh, Bob Pilot Landing. So he wanted me to go back and land. And so we'd only been airborne about 15 minutes. Uh, we used a lot of afterburner, so we did go through a lot of fuel. But uh, I'm estimating they only had about a half a fuel load on that airplane when we took off. And so I uh, took it around. Uh, again, I didn't know what the flap speeds were, gear speeds, uh, landing speed or anything like that. Valerie never said a word. You know, I uh, dropped the flap when I figured it was about right and uh, dropped the gear when I figured it was about right. And uh, turned it around, touched down, and it rolled out uh, just like an F-18 or any other fighter had flown. So uh, I was pretty impressed with it. Uh, you know, for a seat-of-the-pants flight, it was a great experience. I'm hugely impressed that you managed to fly an aircraft that you'd never flown before with the instructions in a completely foreign language. And I guess when, when you're flying an aircraft, you, you get a sort of like feel for it, do you? Is it a bit? Yeah, yeah. You, you wear an airplane, you don't fly it. You know, uh, it's part of your body, so that uh, you get that feel for it uh, pretty quick. You know, when you're asking the airplane to do more than what it's capable of doing, because it's going to start to shake or drop a wing, or you know, it gives you a lot of indications that uh, hey, you're pushing me too hard. So that uh, that's kind of the feeling you get when you fly a jet, right? And uh, so the equivalent for me, I'm d- I'm just trying to, <laughs> is you know I drive a manual shift car. Good for you. I and I know by the sound when I need to change gear. Exactly. Yeah. Same thing. It's that that sort of feel or that knowledge that you've built up over the years of flying various different aircraft types. That when you hear or feel something, that's the time to lay off or or you know change something. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, you get that feeling that, hey, this airplane's not liking that, you know, and so you back off a bit. And uh, 
since it flew so similar to an F-18, it wasn't all that challenging. You know, I don't know whether I oversped his flap and gear or not, but he didn't say anything. And uh, so I guess he was happy with it. It landed like a normal airplane, a normal fighter. You know, I kept it fast, but, you know, it's in kilometers per hour. I couldn't tell. You know, those numbers didn't mean anything to me. You know, the F-18, we land about 132 knots, which, you know, I don't know, maybe 250 kilometers per hour. But I wasn't figuring that out at that time. I just figured, okay, this looks about right. And uh, since Valerie didn't say anything, I guess uh, I guess it was just about right. <laughs> well, you brought it back in one piece. Yes, <laughs> we got back on the ground. Uh, it sounds like your uh, defense minister was mightily relieved when you came back down. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I'm sure those folks were, you know. Uh, I owe everything to those two, you know. Uh, that would never have happened unless they put their careers on the line to allow it to happen. You know, so I can't say enough about, uh, well, Scott, unfortunately, just passed away last year. But uh, Mary Collins, uh, yeah, you know, she put her whole political career on the line. She, she's been told by the minister that uh, that wouldn't happen. And with with the the MiG-29, I mean, in the cockpit and the, the look of the air, did it look a bit rudimentary or did it seem like a well-put-together aircraft? Yeah, you know, uh Soviet technology and Western technology are, are a lot different. They, they they build fighters for a war of attrition. You know, they're not built shiny and clean and smooth like our airplanes are. Uh, you know, rivets are sticking out. Their tires got are threadbare. Uh, you know, they're pretty crude in their construction, but uh, they overcome that with power. You know, so that uh, they're low cost. You know, fighters. And uh, they build lots of them, you know. So that's more their philosophy. In Western philosophy, uh, we don't fight like that, you know. So uh, I don't know who's right. Uh, we would have had a hard time. Uh, we might have ran out of missiles before we shot all of those boys down if that war had went hot. Yeah, they had so many fighters. They outnumbered us about nine to one in the air. Right. Yeah. Right. And d- did you have any experience of the heads-up display? No, you know, the they, they wouldn't turn on the heads-up display. They didn't turn on the radar. It was strictly a flight performance assessment that I could make. And uh, it was a very limited flight performance assessment that I could make because I couldn't read the instruments, you know. And uh, But, you know, I could tell from what I did in comparison to the F-18, it was, uh, it was a pretty good gunfighter. It would have done. It would have been a big challenge. I think if we had a fought an F eighteen against a MiG twenty nine for real in combat, the difference would have been the pilots. The better pilot would have won. You know, the airplanes were were very similar in capability. Now they had a thirty millimeter cannon, and we only had a twenty millimeter cannon with our M sixty one, so that uh, they could have uh, fired a lot longer range at us than what we could have fired at them. But with uh, aircraft that have no angle of attack limitations like that, like the F-18 and MiG-29, uh, that would have been a close-in canopy-to-canopy dogfight anyhow. Right, almost like an old-style you, dogfight. You bet, yeah. You know, back in those days with the F-18, we were dogfighters. Uh, we were gunfighters because the missile technology wasn't that great. In Vietnam era, you're running about a 20% PK. Potential kill with a, sh- a missile shot was only about 20%. So that uh, if you wanted to get uh, uh, get a kill, you're probably going to do it with your gun. And as the technology improved, like uh, like it is now, the boys don't gunfight at all. You know, this uh, high performance turn capability is no longer a requirement, really, because your missile technology is so good that you should never get any closer than about 30 miles to the aircraft you're engaging. You know, right. The, you know, the technology has taken a lot of fun out of being a fighter pilot. You know, there's no, there's nothing better than being a gunfighter, you know, dogfighting. But uh, yeah. nowadays yeah. the boys... Whereas pressing pressing a button from 30 miles away. Yeah, it's uh, become a video game, you know. And uh, I think the boys still do gunfight, you know, but tactically it's probably not viable. The problem is, is that once you get into a gunfight, somebody's going to die. You can't separate from that gunfight without getting shot by a missile. Mm. So when you get into that gunfight, you better have more fuel than the other guy because the first guy that runs out of fuel is going to die too. Yeah. You know, so that uh, 
Uh, I think that's probably why the uh, tactical environment has changed so they don't gunfight anymore. And your PK, your missiles are so good now, too, that uh, that's the way the technology has gone. But in our day, we were gunfighters, and uh, I'm just happy that I lived in that era. Yeah. Yeah. So so when you landed, did you have a chance to chat with Valerie through an interpreter to understand a little bit more about the plane? Yeah, you know, we uh, we unstrapped. There's a lot of a lot of excitement, you know, uh, about that at the time. The media was there and they wouldn't let me talk to the media. Uh, they whisked me off to their little pavilion and a uh, whole lot of Russians in there. And there's a translator with us, too. And so he could talk to me and tell me what was going on. And they uh, poured me a, a tumbler glass about uh, half full of vodka. And so that uh, we toasted the MiG-29. And everybody had a, a tumbler size of vodka uh, at that time. And, and they those boys drank it straight down. You know, they took it all in one gulp type of thing. And so I was uh, – I was a fighter pilot. I wasn't going to let them outdo me, so I did the same thing. Now, I'm not much of a drinker. I uh, I never drank during the uh, my air show time at all, uh, just because it takes me too long to recover. I get hung over if I drink, you know, so that I, I drank Coca-Cola, you know. But I had to drink vodka with these boys because I just flown their big, and we toasted the Mikoyan company. And so I did that, and they, they immediately – Filled those glasses again, half full, uh, with vodka. And this time uh, they toasted uh, me uh, for flying to MiG-29s. Well, not be polite not to drink to that, so I drank that one as well. And then, uh, again, they filled the glasses up. So that was three half tumblers, you know, and I'm guessing maybe four or five ounces uh, at a shot. And uh, we toasted the Soviet Union, I think it was next, and I drank that. Well, my ears started to ring, and my tongue was tingling, and uh, I figured, it well, the buggers are going to kill me with alcohol poisoning before I get a chance to talk about this thing. But uh, I don't really know a lot that went on after that uh, inside the pavilion. I came out, and, of course, the media or there in their droves uh, wanting to talk about uh, what my opinion was of this MiG-29. Well, I was pretty drunk. And so the, those interviews are still on uh, YouTube, I think. It's pretty funny to watch. Oh, but you've got to send me I, links to those, Bob. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen them for years. I don't know. Uh, I'll try and find you, buddy, and, and send you them. But, yeah. Uh, yeah I'm, well, uh, I need subtitles with your slurring. <laughs> I was more than slurring. I could hardly stand up. <laughs> and uh, so, I, you know, I, I really gave them good press because I was. I was sincerely impressed with their airplane. And, of course, you know, I uh, I had no qualms about painting them 10 feet tall either because that only helped our defense industry. You know, the threat is real. The threat is good. And it's very capable, just as capable as the jets we were flying. Now, that was not really all true in the sense that I only looked at flight performance. I didn't happen to see what their radar weapons capabilities were, you know, so I couldn't really make an assessment. And those are the important things about a fighter aircraft. It's not necessarily maneuverability. It's how good is your, are, are your weapon systems and radar. So that uh, I give them good press, anyhow, and uh, they seem to be happy with that because I uh, the Cold War ended uh, – well, the Berlin Wall came down in 89, and uh, the flag came off the Kremlin in 91. So uh, it kind of ended in 91, uh, and we went from six F-18 squadrons down to three uh, operational so that uh, the rating was on the wall. I was uh, 40 some years, 47 years old, I guess, at the time, and I put in my release along with a whole bunch of other boys, and we went airlines. And uh, I was flying with a company called Canada 3000, which is, you might remember a Brit uh, airline called uh, Air 2000. And yeah. we were kind of a sister company of theirs. And we did charter flying. I was flying uh, Airbus 330s. And uh, I get a call from this guy out of Langley. Uh, I forget what year that was. That was for the uh, Farnborough Air Show around 97, 98. And... Uh, the Soviets wanted me to fly their Su-30, Su-30. 
and it had never been seen in the Western world. It was supposed to be a, a vectored thrust fighter. And uh, they said they would pay me to go to Farnborough and fly it there for them. So that, <laughs> I figured that's a pretty good deal. And they were going to pay me to do it. So I called my boss at Canada 3000 and said, hey, I'm going back to being a fighter pilot for a weekend. And uh, he, he allowed me to do that. And uh, I was living in Vancouver at the time. And uh, I, I was supposed to leave on a Monday morning on British Airways over to London. And uh, I got a call uh, Sunday. Well, it was actually Monday about uh, 1 o'clock in the morning. And it was this same guy out of Langley. And he was saying, it's all off, buddy. He says, uh, Soviets aren't bringing their Su-30. And you know, that Su-30 wasn't seen for another five years. You know, so what happened, I have no idea. But that's one of my big regrets that I never got to fly that. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, the um, the Soviets or the, or the Russians at that point had obviously remembered you. And <laughs> knew I you think were, I gave them good press. Yeah, knew yeah. you were a good ambassador for Soviet <laughs> aviation or Russian aviation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I know. Uh, and they were good boys, you know. Uh, I actually, uh, they came back when they were going back to Russia. Uh, they came back through Comox. So I guess Norad changed their mind and allowed them to get into Comox. And so I had the boys over for dinner at my house. And uh, they were good boys. They really are, you know. That must have been quite uh, incredible. I mean, you know, I've I've spoken to an RAF pilot about sort of that, that almost – not overnight change, but that sudden change from them being the obvious enemy to being just fellow aviators and both participating in air shows. But to have, you know, those pilots at your house, perhaps eight or nine months before, you would have thought, this will never happen. That, well, that would yeah. never happen. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, the boys themselves, the military boys themselves are really good boys. You know, they're like any one of us, but, uh, the KGB guys, they were, they were pretty rough. And, uh, our boys do the same thing. RCMP, uh, you know, CSIS, our intelligence groups, they were all over them, you know, so that, uh, that's their job. That's the way they do it. But that's not the way the military does it. So I was quite happy to be friends with them and to host them. And, uh, you know, I, I flew for Korean Air the last eight years of my career. And uh, I went into Moscow and uh, St. Petersburg uh, every month or so. And so I, I got a hold of Anatoly Kvotcher. Mm-hmm. And uh, Anatoly would be in his 50s then. And he was still a test pilot, you know, for the uh, Russian aviation industry and he had set all kinds of world records and different fighters and things like that and you know it had been quite a few years since i met uh, anatoly at abbotsford and uh, you know he was just so good to me you know he's a he's a real gentleman unfortunately he just lost his wife and child in a car accident uh, about three weeks before that so it, uh, you know he's going through that but uh, a real gentleman you know i've got nothing but good to say for those boys yeah yeah. Are you still in contact with them? You know, I haven't. Uh, I haven't kept contact with yeah. Anatoly. Or, uh, I don't know what happened to Valerie. Uh, you know, Anatoly tried to explain something to me, but uh, it wasn't in depth or something as, as though Valerie had kind of left the scene, I guess. And Robin was test flying helicopters, I think, or something. You know, so they changed careers quite a bit. Right. I mean, flying for an airline after being a fighter pilot, must be i say boring is a good word yeah <laughs> yeah i was trying to be a bit more diplomatic there bob but uh... <laughs> yeah yeah no you know airline flying is good you know uh i work for good companies uh korean air they hired uh, western pilots because they were having a lot of accidents and uh, they lost overflight privileges uh, in most of europe and north america unless they had a western captain so they hired about 350 of us in 91, or no, it was later on, 98, 99. And uh, the management treated us very well. The, the other pilots that we were flying with, uh, of course, were a bit disappointed because their boys got laid off and uh, we were taking their jobs. Mm. But uh, they more or less understood that, hey, we were there to keep the company viable, keep them, keep them airborne. Yeah. Yeah. So, that, uh, so presumably after you'd flown the MiG-29, the intelligence boys were all over you and 
you had a big debrief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The chief of defense staff said he wanted to talk to me on Monday morning. So I took an F-18 down to Ottawa and they brought me in for the morning brief. And that's, you know, every morning down at the uh, National Defense Headquarters, all the Army and the Navy generals get together with the chief of defense staff. The chief of defense staff happened to be Paul Manson, who was the general I worked with at 1CAG headquarters in, in LAR. Mm. And so I knew him quite well. And, uh, you know, when I walked in there, General Manson, he says, Bobby, he says, I hear you had quite a weekend. <laughs> he says, uh, but before we get into that, he says, how are your kids? How's David doing now? You know, and he knew all my kids' names. You know, that's the kind of man Paul Manson was. Yeah. He uh, he was the best general I've ever known in my career. Well, Scott Eichel was pretty good, too. We've got some great bosses in the, in the Air Force, you know, and so that I briefed them on uh, what I'd seen and, and did with the MiG-29 and uh, what was supposed to be five minutes when they told me to go in there no longer than five minutes, only answer questions when you're asked that type of stuff. Well, shit, I was in there for about 45 minutes. They were interested in the story. And so when I come out of there, these two guys, they said, you got to talk to these two guys. And they were the CIA boys out of the States wanting the story. And so I told them what happened. You know, uh, we don't keep any secrets uh, between us and the Americans, but Canada all of a sudden had information that the rest of NATO didn't have. And so that uh, they marketed that pretty good. You know, so they, they, I guess in that business, you kind of swap favors back and forth, you know. And so that for the next year, I spent a lot of time traveling around NATO talking about the MiG-29 as a 20-minute expert on a MiG-29, you know. But uh, just briefing different different groups uh, as to what my experiences were so that, uh, yeah, yeah, it was – yeah, because they must have filmed the uh, the flights in Canada really closely. You know, I don't know. I never saw anything on it. Uh, I've seen a couple right. of still pictures taken by civilians at the air show, but what uh, what the intelligence community got out of this, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's it's same thing with any classified information. You don't share it unless the person you're sharing it with has a need to know. You, know, you can both have the same security yeah. clearance, but you can't talk about information unless there's a need to know that information. So that, uh, yeah. I never, you know, they yeah. had, I had no need to know, I guess. So nobody ever briefed me on what they, yeah. what they got. Yeah. Cause by 1990, the Luftwaffe had acquired, cause yeah. I think it was the only jet type that the Luftwaffe took over from the uh, East German Air Force. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so the boys learned a lot then because then they could actually fly the MiG-29 and they could dogfight it uh, with the F-15, F-18, that type of stuff. So, yeah, I'm sure they learned a lot more. But I was out of the Air Force by that time, so I I had no idea. I've talked to some of the boys, uh, you know, at Air Force mess dinners and stuff like that, you know, that we have every year now. And uh, they related their experiences to me. And uh, they weren't that impressed with the airplane. They weren't near as impressed with the MiG-29 as what I was. So I don't know. Uh, They had a better look than I did. You know, I had 20 minutes. So I don't know. And I I didn't know what the fuel weights were on the airplane or that type of thing either. So, Well, I'm still blown away that you you managed to, you know, 20 minutes – um, sort of just an overview of how it works, and you managed to fly the thing. Um, I, ju- I just find that incredible, but hats yeah. off to you. Well, thank you, Ian. But, yeah, I worked it pretty hard. I, uh, I was hard on their airplane, but uh, they didn't seem to mind, you know, so yeah. that, that was good. A great experience. You know, I guess everybody gets 30 minutes in the sun. That was mine. If you like what you're hearing, sign up to our email list at coldwarconversations.com. Bob is on the board of directors at the Royal Canadian Air Force Museum in Alberta, where they have an excellent Cold War exhibit, and they are fundraising to expand the exhibit further. Click on the Royal Canadian Air Force Museum link for further information. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. 
don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information